Hello, and welcome back to the PCF Bible Talk podcast. My name is Anna, and I'm here today with my coworkers. Hello, I'm Sky. I'm Brenea. And we're really glad that you're joining us today. Today, we're actually picking up our series on the drama of redemption after a long break for the holidays. Um, And so since it's been a little while, we want to reorient ourselves to the biblical story as we've covered it so far and just remember where we left off. So to paint the picture of what we've covered so far, in Genesis at the beginning, we studied the creation of the world and how God created Adam and Eve to have fellowship with him and to walk in communion and community with God himself in the garden. But then Adam and Eve sinned and they were cut off from this communion and community with God and they were kicked out of the garden. And humanity's relationship with God had a problem come into it, and there was a break and a disconnection that happened. And then we went on in the book of Genesis. We saw that Abraham came and that God spoke to him and said that he would bless him and that he would bless him with two things. He would bless him with a family and with a land for that family to live in. And we now we got the hint that God was going to establish a people a group of people who were going to be his special people who could start to reestablish this bond that had been broken um, when Adam and Eve sinned. So now we're following this family of Abraham. We follow his son, Isaac, and Isaac's son, Jacob. And then Jacob has 12 sons, including Joseph. And we learned how those 12 sons and that whole family moved to Egypt. And they were known as the Hebrew people at that point. So this family is now in Egypt, and they become enslaved in Egypt for many hundreds of years. But then we saw how miraculously God brought the Hebrew people out of Egypt by signs and wonders and parting the Red Sea and defeating Pharaoh's army. And then on the other side of the Red Sea, in the desert of Sinai, God invites them to be his people and to restore in some measure the communion and community that was in the Garden of Eden. And we saw that the people, the Hebrew people said, yes, we will be your people. And God said, you will be my people. And here is the law that I'm going to give you that will show you what it looks like for a group of people to act as the set apart people of God. And that's where we left off last time. So it was a story of how individuals have become now a nation. These descendants of Abraham have become a new people group, the Hebrew people, And they are in the process of becoming the nation of Israel. And that's where we're picking up the story. Now, as we look forward to this semester of our Drama of Redemption Bible study, we're going to have to skip over a a lot of portions of the Old Testament. Unfortunately, it's just too big for us to fully cover in this time. Um, But in order to think through the passages of the Old Testament that we are going to be able to cover I want to give us this rubric of three different leadership roles in the nation of Israel, because now that we're starting to have a nation, a nation has leaders, right? And so the question is, who are these leaders? How are they leading God's people? Um, What is important in, in a people group that is devoted to God? And so we see three roles. We see the role of a prophet. We see the role of a priest and the role of a king. And we want to track those three roles and the people who fill those roles through the Old Testament. Because fundamentally, we are looking for how God is speaking to his people, how he is guiding them, and whether or not they can succeed sort of in being God's God's people 
by having good leaders. But what we're going to find out is that there never is the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, or the perfect king. And we still, at the end of the Old Testament, are going to be looking for that perfect fulfillment of these three roles. But before we get there, we don't want to jump ahead too much to the New Testament. We want to think, well, what should a prophet look like? What should a priest look like? What should a king look like? How does God lay this out? So to do that, we're going to pull out some passages from um, Deuteronomy and Exodus and talk about these different roles and how God lays them out. So that is where we're headed right now. All right. So the first role that we're going to look at is the role of prophet. And Moses was a prophet for the people of Israel. And in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 18, he is speaking Um, It's near the end of his life, and he's giving the nation of Israel a charge to how they're going to live after he has died. And so now we're going to read from Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 22. And Sky, would you be able to read that for us? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is what Moses says in Deuteronomy 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my word, He shall speak in my name. I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Thank you, Sky. All right. So Moses here is saying, there will be a prophet like me that God will raise up from among you. So he's predicting future prophets to come in the nation of Israel. So what struck you guys about the attributes of a prophet or what a prophet does? Well, one thing that really stuck out to me is this idea um, that God will give him the word to speak, that like he'll be speaking the word of God, like the word that God gives him. It's not like his own thoughts or feelings or predictions, um, but that he's like, he's a vehicle for the Lord's word and truth. So that was one thing that really stuck out to me. Yeah. He's like God's spokesperson. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And it's interesting to see here too, because God's the one giving that. It's like you said, Brene, it's God's word to the people, but God's also the one giving the prophet. Um, It's not like, okay, yeah, and someone will of their own accord kind of learn to speak well and learn what I want to say. Um, But God's like, I'm giving you my word and I'm going to raise that person up. Um, I will, in Deuteronomy, it says, God will raise up for you a prophet like So yeah, just that willingness of God to raise up the right person, um, just like we've seen him raise up Moses to the task that he had before him. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this idea of God as both the creator and the sustainer of the things he creates. Um, Like, you know, he creates us and he sustains us with breath day by day. And yeah, like he raises up this person and he gives them the word to speak. There's nothing that 
can be done like the prophet can do apart from God. Yeah. yeah. And if, and if he is speaking apart from God, they're not supposed to accept him. Like he is supposed to be speaking the word that God gives him and not making up things either. Um, so, yeah, so he really is a mouthpiece of God. That's the word of the prophet to speak for God to God's people and to communicate with them about what God is saying or wants them to do. Um, and it's so interesting to me in this passage. Why does it say that the Israelites need a prophet? Like it, it sort of <laughs> recalls this instance. Yeah. So why do they need a prophet? Yeah, first when you read this, you're like, hey, y'all tripping. Like you're like, oh, I don't wanna hear. We don't we don't want to hear again the voice of the Lord or see his great fire, lest I die. It's really intense. And so the, the people are, are aware of like, oh, hearing God's voice or seeing his fire, like we can we cannot stand to be in his holy presence. So can we get someone who's like that's their job? And then God's like, Yeah, you're right. You're right. I am really, really holy. And we we do need this. And so then God, yeah, he takes that initiative and says, yeah, let me raise up someone. You're right. You actually do recognize my level of holiness. And I already knew this, but let me go ahead and raise up something because uh, to be in my presence, my holy presence is, is too intense for them. Well, and even like I was saying in the intro, when we're talking about, we're sort of, we're trying to get back to Eden. We're in, we're in fellowship with God, but we're not back there yet, right? Adam and Eve, after they sinned, they hid from God. Um, he was too much for them. And even now with the people of Israel being God's people, it's still, as you said, too intense for them to hear directly from God because of they are still so sinful. And so they need this intermediary voice to talk to them and to communicate what God um, is telling them. So it's interesting that God provides them with this intermediary voice. He answers them. He's like, that is right. What you have spoken. I am too holy to just talk directly to you. So I'm going to give you a prophet. It's going to be Moses. And then after Moses, I think here, Moses is referring to Joshua, who will be his successor, but there is a way that he, he's pointing to a more ultimate fulfillment, a prophet like me who will do this job in a complete way. So we're also looking to be who is the ultimate word from the Lord who really speaks for God himself. And Joshua will be that partially, but he won't be a full fulfillment of that. I wonder. So that is be. us looking. Yeah. Who will it be? <laughs> so that is that is us looking forward to the prophetic role as it's fulfilled through the Old Testament but also we're looking for an ultimate fulfillment of a prophet like Moses or even greater than Moses, um, as is said later. All right. So next we're going to talk about the role of the priest. And there's a lot in the, in the book of Leviticus and Exodus about the priesthood and all the regulations surrounding the priesthood. And we won't read all of those things. But we do are going to read some select passages, and there are a lot of details in them. But still, let's try to listen and see what sort of sets the priests apart? So the first section we're going to read is actually about oil, the oil that is used to anoint the priests for their role. So Brene is going to read us Exodus 30, verses 22 through 30. The Lord said to Moses, Take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is 250, and 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hen of olive oil. And you shall make these sacred anointing oil blended as by the perfumer. 
It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it, you shall anoint the tent of the meeting and the ark of the testimony and the table and all its utensils and the lampstand and its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all of its utensils and the basin with its stand. You shall consecrate them that they may be the most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. Okay, guys, when I was putting this together, I almost went down a whole 20-minute sidebar on anointing, but I spared you all. But I do want to just highlight here this idea of a special oil, a holy oil that has these specific proportions that is used, not that it has like magical powers in itself, but it consecrates people to service. And so also when we get to kingship, the idea of the anointed one, the one anointed for a specific task is very important throughout the whole Testament. So we could do a a word study on anointed. We'll skip that. But the priests are anointed for their service with this very precious oil. All right, let's read a little bit more about them. So Sky's going to read us from, there's a seven-day ritual for the priest to be consecrated as priest. So Sky's going to read us a small section of that from Leviticus 8, 5 through 12. And Moses said to the congregation, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. And he put the coat on him and tied the sash around his waist and clothed him with the robe And put the ephod on him, and tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him with the band. And he placed the breastplate on him, and in the breastplate he put the urim and the thummim. And he set the turban on his head, and on the turban, in front, he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took the anointing oil, and anointed the tabernacle, and all that was in it, and consecrated them. And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all of its utensils in the basin and its stand to consecrate them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. Thanks for reading those details, Sky. And we're skipping a lot of other details, too. There's even more along these lines. And just breaking here, any any details stand out to you guys or what kind of impression is this building of the priesthood? Definitely that it's really supposed to be set aside, um, like, you know, set apart, this idea of being holy set apart. It's like, okay, and then do this seven times and oil, not just this, but also the basin, right? Like the top and the bottom, every part of it. Yeah, and just the very specific commands, uh-huh, which we saw prior in like the building of the tabernacle. But God's paying attention to these details. And this is how God says, okay, focus on these details. And this is how you will be consecrated, be made holy. I just think too how like physical it is. I know that seems obvious, but when we think back to the prophet, that was just about the word of the Lord. It didn't say like a prophet should wear this and a prophet should like cleanse himself with this or wear this special garment that makes him the prophet or something. But the priest's role is very physically like descriptive, like everything that he's wearing, everything to do with his body, like, and his actions is, is sort of prescribed. And as you guys have been saying, sort of set apart and holy and special and significant. So all these details kind of just reinforce that. 
All right. So after the seven-day ceremony is complete, this is the end result of the ceremony that we're going to read now from Leviticus 9, verses 6 and 7. So Brene is going to read that for us. And Moses said, this is the thing that the Lord commanded to you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Then Moses said to Aaron, draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people and bring the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. All right. And then we go through some verses where Aaron offers all the appropriate sacrifices with lots of details of what makes them appropriate and well done. And then we get to the conclusion, verses 22 through 24. So Brene, if you want to pick up there. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And the fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. All right. So what more does this add to sort of the role of the priest and what the purpose of the priest is in the nation of Israel, like why they needed them? Well, the first thing that comes to mind uh, is that the priest kind of serves as a bridge, right? Like he goes before the Lord to uh, make the offerings for sin. Um, So yeah, just this, this experience from kind of being like the bridge. Yeah. With that bridge, I also see kind of like as you're going over the bridge, it's taking different steps Um, because we saw earlier they were consecrated. They were anointed with oil. Um, But then here we see that they offer a sacrifice for themselves to make atonement for themselves. And then they offer a sacrifice for the people to make atonement for the people. So there's kind of those different steps. It's like, okay, we've got to work. We've got to deal with the, the priest's personal sin first before we can then deal with the people. Right. Yeah. That really reminds me of like how God set him, like has to set the priest in place because not even he is worthy or holy, right? It's because God has re- re- like raised up a priest um, so that there, there's still this level of obedience to the Lord, right? Even just these steps, it's not like, hey, the priest is the one who walks up to the guy like, hey, come, can you come do this for me, right? Like, you know, it, it is this, I need to be forgiven for my own sins. And then God has given me this responsibility on behalf of the people. Yeah, and it makes me just, just think again on that word consecrated, like as an action, they are consecrated. It takes things to make them consecrated. It's not just like you snap your fingers and they're consecrated. Um, They're consecrated. They're set apart, made holy, dedicated, like all those words together, these action words of this process. Mm -hmm. I was just struck too. In uh, verse six, it said, this is the thing that the Lord commanded to you, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. And then at the end, the glory of the Lord appears and everyone falls on their faces. So again, we're back to that intensity of like, God's like, in order for me to appear to you at all, you guys need to go through this huge purification. And then when I do come, you're just flat on your faces. Um, So again, we just, we have this consecrated person who can mediate between God and his people, but it's not, it's not perfect. It's still, God is still awesome and and fearful in those senses of God's good um, glory. And also, like you guys have been saying, the priests had to make atonement first for their own sins. So again, we're sort of, we see God's provision, but we're also, there's a hint of like, 
wouldn't be great if there was a priest who didn't have to make atonement for their own sins first and someone who could reveal the glory of the Lord in a more complete way. So the priest is an honored role, but there is also, it's, it doesn't fully heal the relationship between God and his people. So that's priest. We've got our prophet speaking the word of the Lord. We have our consecrated priest performing the sacrifices that are necessary to clear away the sin of the people of Israel and to make room for the glory of the Lord to appear. appear. And the last role that we're going to talk about is the role of a king. So when you have a nation, you normally have a king, particularly in the time that um, these events were taking place. And God anticipates that Israel will have a king, although they don't currently where we are right now in the desert of Sinai. And so in Moses's final speech, he also talks about what will happen when they get a king. And this is from Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20. So Sky is going to read that for us. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers, you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you, whom is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself, or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, You shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all in the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes, and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. All right, so we've got the kingship laid out here. So what, first of all, we'll talk about the negatives, because that's what comes first. What is the king not supposed to be and not supposed to do? Well, you know, Anna, even you asking that question, I think it's really interesting because for these other roles, it was like what they should be doing. But for the Mm -hmm. king, because of the position of power of ruling over people, um, it's like, hey, this is how you need to make sure to stay grounded and to not abuse your power. So I I think that's really interesting. And so um, one of the things is like, you know, not too much silver or gold. Um, which is just like an interesting thing, right? Normally when we think about rulers are like, be as wealthy as you could possibly be, have all of these resources. Um, so yeah, it says that shouldn't be uh, what the goal should be, not excessive silver and gold. And I don't know, maybe we could think of that. It was like, you know, when we have no physical needs um, or like, you know, when we are kind of living in abundance, it can be hard to remember the dependence on the Lord. So I don't know, maybe that's one reason that God kind of throws that out there. Yeah, and the other thing that um, it says, you shall not have many horses or horsemen, or um, and that kind of goes with that silver and the gold um, in the sense of do not acquire all these material possessions for you. Um, but it also goes further. Um, and actually, Brene used, used the word dependence, um, where it's like they're saying, okay, you don't want all these horses because we don't want you to be dependent on other nations. Um, and it's like I want you, God saying, I want you to be. De- be dependent on me only. 
um, and don't go and seek after kind of the riches of other nations. Don't seek after um, these horses. Don't build up this huge army. That's kind of what's being said with these horses. Um, yeah. Don't build up a huge army because God is going to be your army. He will fight for you. He will protect you. I just feel like if someone's doing a study of First Kings or Second Kings, if you're reading later on in the Old Testament, it would be good every t- before you read a chapter of that book, always just read this paragraph, and then you'll know why God is upset with all the kings. Continue, <laughs> <laughs> right? Because we're sort of sometimes when we just read the prophets, we're like, why is God upset? Did He not tell them? But these are the issues over and over again with the kings that do eventually come in Israel. They have. They gather too much wealth. They become dependent on the nations around them, which God continually tells them, I don't want you to be subject to Egypt or I don't want you to be subject to Assyria. I want you to be your own independent nation dedicated to me. You know, your ruler should come from among the people. Like it shouldn't be an outside person. And when he says not too many wives, that's partially um, going with like the wealth and, and having like a huge family and those kinds of things. But wives are also about foreign alliances. And wives often, when they come from foreign alliances, they often are worshiping foreign gods. And we'll see that again and again in the history of Israel. The wives of the kings of Israel pull them into worshiping the gods of the countries that they came from. And so there's a way there that the king is not staying single-minded on his own country and his own people, but is being pulled to all these outside interests and outside political alliances. So all these things he shouldn't do. What should he do? I love this. I think this is so interesting. Yeah. Copy out a book of the law, right? Like, I know. <laughs> it's like, sit down, write it down. You know, it reminds me kind of of like, um, you know, like one of those kind of older consequences. It's like, oh, you did this, write it out 20 times. Like, make sure you know what the law is. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Write it out. It's not like, okay, it's going to be a page long. It's not going to be a 5,000-word essay. Uh, I, this is the law. There are so many statutes, so many commands that God gives. Um, we think of the law in our Bible as the first five books of the Bible. Um, and, you know, if you just want to pick one book of the Bible from the Old Testament and copy it out, one of those books from the Torah, it's, yeah, it's not just going to be a couple pages. Um, so it just shows kind of the extensiveness where God's like, okay, I want you to write this down. And it's going to take a while. But I want you to write it down because I want you to know this. I want you to be like, yes, I have written these words with my own hand. I know God's commands. I know what the Lord requires of me. Yeah. Yes, guy. You know, like it literally says he should write it for himself in a book, right? Like, yeah, instantly go to like, oh, well, one of he can have one of his servants do it or whatever. Like, you know, write this out. So it's, it's like, no, you need to write it yourself. And then it goes a step further to say, and then follow it all the days of your life. Like write it out, note in your heart and obey it. And that goes back to dependence on God, right? Because how can a man keep his way pure, right? Like, but like relying that the dependence on the Lord. Well, and just like your point, Renea, you know, outsourcing it to a servant, you do feel like these rulers are not always famous for knowing their own laws. They're like, ah, that's my counselor's responsibility, or I'm just going to enjoy the wealth and power and privilege that I have in my position, and I'm not going to worry about the actual responsibilities of my position. And God is like, no, you need to know the law, and you need to obey it yourself, and it's going to be like part of you. Um, and it's going to, you know, don't be proud. Don't turn aside from it. Keep this law next to you. Write out a copy for yourself, every king, and and stick to it. And then the promise comes, then you will continue in your kingdom, you and your children in Israel. And you'll be blessed if you do these things. 
All right. So that is the role of the king. So we now have these three leadership roles laid out for us of prophet, priest, and king. And we're going to keep coming back to them as we study different portions of the scripture. And so I want you to just think about those categories. And we've already been drawing out a little bit how there are some limitations within these categories themselves, like we've seen with the priest, or we've seen how we're going to find that nobody lives up to it. But here's the ideal, and now we have to see if anyone can keep it. And ultimately, they're not going to keep it, but we are looking forward to that day in the New Testament when Jesus comes and there's a way that he is going to fulfill each of these roles. And hopefully we'll be able to track that as we go into the New Testament as well. Um, so where does that leave us for next time, Bernam? So I'm really excited for Bible study this week because we're, like you just said, we're going to be carrying these themes of prophet, priest, and king all throughout the semester and as we're kind of moving into the New Testament. But this first week, we're going to be looking at this week in Bible study, we're going to be looking at the first two kings of Israel. And you want to be there um, if you're listening to this uh, because it's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to be hearing about the first king who goes kind of rogue and then the next king was known to be a man after God's own heart. Um, And so we're going to kind of look at the ways in which they were able to fulfill what God was calling them to do as kings and the ways in which they struggled. So I'm excited for us all to be talking about that in our Bible studies. And we're excited to see you all there um, as we study God's word. Yeah. So thank you for joining us. We hope we'll see you in Bible study if you're able to join. And if you're just listening, thank you and God bless. Bye-bye. Bye.